This podcast is part of the No Phony Podcast Network, the home of independent awesomeness. Were the apocalyptic films of the 1980s more thrilling than those of any other decade? Climb out from under your desk and let's find out. Once again, it's time for the idiots. objective defense of the 80s from a couple of idiots welcome back to another episode of the idiots an objective defense of 1980s pop culture from a couple of idiots my name is will and joining me as always is my friend ray how you doing ray it is time to talk about stuff you know i was wondering should we drop the um from a couple of idiots. At this point, I think so, because I think everyone's figured out that we're actually uh, Mensa <laughs> candidates. Well, I was thinking, maybe we just learned. Maybe we're not so dumb anymore. Yeah, uh, from a couple of geniuses. <laughs> you know, it'd be great if we had that guy on retainer, <laughs> and we could have him change it like every episode. Yeah. Like the Dick Van Dyke show, you're not sure what beginning you're getting, you know? Oh, that's cool. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic films, and a little bit later, we're going to be speaking with the star of a post-apocalyptic film, Catherine Mary Stewart, who starred in Night of the Comet. But she also starred in one of our other all-time favorites from the 1980s, The Last Starfighter. Yeah. But before all of that, let's get caught up on 80s news. All right. As usual, there's plenty of things to report um, from the 80s news, but we, we're starting off with something that's... Uh, a sad note for us, we lost an uh, actor who was a star of films in many, many decades, including one, or many, in the 1980s, uh, Max, I'm going to say Max Van Sydow, although I heard it, I've heard it pronounced Max Van Sydow now, also. Um, so, so uh, the star of The Seventh Seal, and of course The Exorcist, has passed away at the age of 90. Um, I think I first became aware of him uh, during a film in the 1980s. Which one for you? Flash Gordon. Flash Gordon. I was terrified of of Max uh, as Ming the Merciless. One of the one of the greatest characters in all of cinematic history. Yeah, and yes, for lots of reasons. It, it, that commanding voice, you know, which gave him this commanding and ominous, this evil presence. I was concerned, like if you remember the beginning of the film, he, you just hear his voice and you see them toying with Earth from some unknown place in the outer reaches of the universe. I was scared as a young child. I think but Flash uh, Gordon came out in the early 80s that, you know, that maybe this sort of thing could happen to us, but it didn't. Thank God it didn't. Yeah. So, and also he was, you know, do you know the other thing that comes to mind when I think of him and his voice in particular in the 1980s? There's a character for which I don't think he was even credited, but he does the voice for a character in one of your favorite films from the 1980s. Hmm. Do, do, do. Is it The Black Cauldron? No, it's a live-action film that's a sequel. It's a, The Evil Dead 2? Oh, boy, no. Well, what are we looking Ghost for? Ghostbusters 2. Oh, really? He does the voice of Vigo, the oh. Carpath- Carpathian. All right. Um, the story goes, as I recall, is that the actor who they got to you know, actually portray the image of this, uh, the bad guy in Ghostbusters 2 looked the part but had a terrible voice for it, you know, maybe he sounded like Mickey Mouse or something relative to the evil they needed to convey. So they go to the guy who's, you know, Ming the Merciless, that, of course. That's a great choice. Yeah, and I don't think they, uh, I don't think he gets got credited for it in the film, but I mean, he's undeniably him. And hmm. uh, of course, now, we, we, since we know that uh, it was him doing the voice. Okay, in other 80s news, let's move on to some more pleasant things. So... 
you know, we just uh, recently had our episode about 1980s iconic cars from film and television. And we did our March Madness, or March Madness, our Crash Madness. Yeah, don't say March Madness. We'll get in <laughs> trouble. Really going to confuse people. We totally came up with this idea all by ourselves. That's right. Any help from a bracket I, from another thing. I just happen to say the current month we're in right, right. now. We did our Crash Madness. We talked to Raymond Kahn about uh, jumping the general lake. So, lo and behold, shortly after that, we got images of the new Batmobile from the upcoming Matt Reeves Batmobile or Batman movie. Have you seen it? No. All right, I'm going to show it to you right now. Okay. Take a look at this here. All right, let's see here. Does it look like... Clearly, it's a muscle car Uh, from the 60s or 70s. It's much better looking than I thought it would be. Mm -hmm. I really wanted the 60s uh, (laughs) Batman car back, but... Yes. This is more Mad Maxi. Yes. And I uh, read on... So I was looking around to see, like, well, what kind of car do do experts think this is? And car and driver, they took a guess as to what they think it is. And it's a model car that we're already familiar with from one of our one of our favorite 1980s properties. They got the Dodge Charger. Yeah, they think yeah. it might be a 69 Dodge Charger. That's, that's kind of what it looks like. Right? Which, you know, as we talked about uh, on our prior show, is the car that was used uh, for the General Lee in the Dukes of Hazard. Mm-hmm. So I feel more encouraged about this Batman. I, I think if you notice on this Batmobile, it's actually got the windshield wipers still on it. So it's a, it seems like he just took a car and, you know, tricked it out. In much yeah. the way that uh, Raymond Kahn would do before he was going to jump it. So I think one of the unusual things might be, though, is I'm, I, I want to know. Either we're going the, are we going the Dukes of Hazard way or are we going the 1960 or 6 Batman way? Will the doors open or not? Is he climbing in through a window or is he like Adam West opening the door before he gets inside? I think he opens the door. And do we care? But Well, I don't, but oh. I really want this to just fool everyone and be a comedy. There's okay. So this is again a harkening back to the '66 Batman kind of comedy, yes, like a campy yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, not not even camp, just a straight up comedy. Oh, with, with just comedy. No, I don't want that. <laughs> I don't think it's likely. Oh come on! Wouldn't that be hilarious? Just no. Of, you go sit down and like some funny music starts no. playing, and you're like, why is why is Elfman doing the soundtrack for Batman now? They kill off Robert Pattinson in the first five minutes. Yeah, and you're... And Will Ferrell comes in and has to fill in for him. (laughs) Yeah. Because he's the butler or something. Oh, he would make a great butler for the comedy. Yeah. Wow. Not going down this path. We need to... to, Look, DC has got to right the ship. They've produced enough crummy movies. They don't need to do a comedy Batman. It would sell. No, (laughs) I don't think it would. I think literally there'd be riots. You can't tell me if Will Ferrell was Alfred... It wouldn't be hilarious. No, I can tell you that. It would not be hilarious. They could shave the bald patch in his head no, so he looked old that, and stuff. That would be funny, but not in a Batman movie. That'd be terrible. So no comedy. All right. Uh, in other 80s news, uh, we just passed an anniversary that I would like to acknowledge because it's very important to me. On March 7th, 1986, the Beastie Boys dropped Licensed to Ill. So we're talking about 34 years ago. So on the heels of the successful uh, albums from LL Cool J and the uh, cult classic Crush Groove, the film, Def Jam uh, decided to take a chance with an unconventional group that mixed a blend of rap and punk and rock Mm -hmm. with with the Beastie Boys. And it was a huge success. Today, it's regarded as, uh, according to the Source magazines, it's one of the top 100 best albums. 
receiving the coveted five mic status, which is a precedent for Jewish hip hop artists. Uh, this is according to the source.com. In less than six months after its release, the critically acclaimed project earned the Beastie Boys a platinum plaque led by the singles Brass Monkey, No Sleep Till Monkey, Mon- No Sleep Till Monkey, <laughs> No Sleep Till Monkey. <laughs> No sleep. We probably go to right to sleep after you have the monkey. <laughs> At least I would. No sleep till Brooklyn. Holden now hit it. And the storytelling smash Paul Revere. Do you have a favorite off that? You album? forgot fight for your right to party. Oh no, I'm listing the ones that they say uh, led to its success. I'm pretty sure that helped with the success. You know what I'm? What I'm also disappointed yeah. they call that a top 100 because that's a top 25 album yes. of all time. Top 10, right? Yeah, you know, I'm glad they don't mention Fight for You right here. I know they think it's been taken the wrong way, but that song is cool. I don't know about taken the wrong way. It's just the weakest song the Beastie Boys have ever made, maybe. I disagree. And I'm disappointed that when I told you this before, people say, you know, I I listen to the Beastie Boys. I love Fight for You. You don't listen to the Beastie Boys. Sit down. You saw a music video back in the 80s. That's still my favorite album by them. Favorite album, yeah. Is that your favorite song on the album? Oh, no, no. Don't Sleep Till Brooklyn is my all-time favorite song by them. That is a very, very good one, yes. You know, I I recall now, we're just like two weeks away from the premiere of their uh, documentary. Yeah, that's going to be good. Yeah, I I am considering it. Maybe we have to make a date out of it and go and see it on IMAX. Then that could be fun. Yeah. Can we sneak our uh, microphones in? Do you think the other Mm. crowd members would get upset? No, that little microphone would fit in there. That's what I mean. Do you think people will be upset though when we start talking during it? (laughs) Yes. If we're doing a show during it, yes. We're Mystery Science 3000. What is that? Mystery (laughs) Science Theater 3000-ing it? Not just that. We're just doing commentary on how we think about the movie. I think people would care, yes. I wouldn't even do it. (laughs) So often I go, look, I love my daughter. I love my dad. But those two folks, well, my dad doesn't talk so much, but when he does, it's loud. Yeah. I don't know if it's because his hearing is not so great or he thinks mine is terrible, <laughs> but you know, he, he does it like he's whispering, but then he shouts, like he puts yeah. his hand up like he's going to whisper. And my daughter, who doesn't speak so loud, does a sort of a running commentary no matter what film we see. So no, yeah. I wouldn't put up for it. I'd be that guy who would usher us out. Of, no, we won't even do it. What if we go see it at like three o'clock in the morning when there's nobody else there? You're probably up at that hour anyway to get ready for work, <laughs> your full-time job as a podcaster. But me, I, I'm probably falling back asleep for the second time after some series of <laughs> nightmares, some night terrors. We could do a whole podcast on our night terrors. <laughs> Wait, night? You have them too? Yeah, I have horrible dreams. I've oh. told you this many times. Oh, I didn't realize it was a recurring thing. Oh, yeah. I have them all the time. And yeah, you've shared some of your weird dreams, but hmm. Oh, yeah, me too. That means you're a light sleeper. Yeah. All right, well, we at least should call that 80s news. Dun, 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 dun. All right, so today we're going to be talking about apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic films of the 1980s, and I'm making a distinction which we could talk about in just a matter of seconds. A little bit later, we'll be speaking with Catherine Mary Stewart, who said we could call her CMS, so maybe we'll start doing that. Cause, yeah, that's pretty cool of her to say that. Yeah, that's a lot of name, you know, and don't you feel like you have to say all three if you're going to say one? You can't say Catherine. People won't necessarily know. I've heard other people like Lance Guest call her Kathy, her co-star from uh, Last Starfighter. Mm-hmm. He uh, knows her a, a lot bit better than we do. Yeah, we're not at Kathy's status yet. <laughs> yeah, we're not there. She didn't offer that when no. she said, yeah, call me CMS. We'll be talking to her a little bit later about her films in the 1980s, which includes at least one, but it seems like two, post-apocalyptic films. First, let's us chat about it. So post-apocalyptic films are on my mind, mm-hmm. not just because we spoke with CMS, but because it seems like right now we're on the border of a, we're on the precipice of an apocalypse 
in our own country, in our own world here. Well, let me ask you this, okay? How much toilet paper do you have? Well, this is an interesting story yeah. because the daughter said, hey, we got to go to the store today. Mm-hmm. I said, all right, so we get to the store. She gives me the list and I go, toilet paper's on the list? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I said, all right, I'll go get the green beans while you go get the toilet paper. And she asks you it with like no sense of irony. She's Yes, she's completely an, oblivious. It's a regular shopping day. She goes over, no toilet paper. And I'm laughing because I already know there ain't no toilet paper at all yeah. these today. Oh, yeah. Because it's all gone. I'm like, all right, well, we're going to go to Walmart, Target, Marks. Nobody's got toilet paper because the apocalypse is upon us. Yeah. And I go, all right, you got to think about this. What store has toilet paper that oh. no one else would know sells toilet paper? This is, a, you know, you remind me now in the 80s films, apocalyptic movies, you have to think of these kind of survival things. Yeah. So I'm teaching survival yeah. skills in the post-apocalyptic world to her. And you're not talking about you taught her, uh, we go to Barnes and Noble and start buying up a bunch of used books right. for toilet paper. Right. No, I got a plan. But you got a better plan than that. I got okay. a better plan than that. All right. So I'm going to give a big shout out. You know? To the Dollar Tree. Oh, all right, sure. Eight, eight rolls of toilet paper for $2. Wow. <laughs> so everybody that was at Walmart today yeah. buying tissues and mm-hmm. paper towels and going, I think I'll make this work, you could have just went to the Dollar Tree. What are we talking here? Um, 25-cent rolls of paper, ta- uh, uh, toilet hey, paper. Would you rather use paper towels? No, I wouldn't. No, that would cause a whole other problem that you probably can't fix during the apocalypse. Yeah. And maybe that's why people are stocking up on water, because they're anticipating (laughs) trying to flush things other than toilet paper. Yeah, that could be. Mm. So, yeah, what we're talking about is, you know what's going on, because you live in this world. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a great fear that uh, we've got this COVID-19 virus spreading, and people are taking on a number of precautionary measures uh, to try to, you know, uh, keep the virus from spreading. Do you think they were sued by Corona beer <laughs> and that's why they're not calling it the coronavirus anymore? No, no, it's not it. For lots of reasons. One, Corona beer couldn't sue. Or they could sue. Anybody could sue anything for anybody. Well, I'm just saying. They wouldn't have a leg to stand They on. even considered changing their name at one point because this was so bad. It's killing them. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, no, my understanding is they're calling it COVID-19 now because it turns out coronavirus is a broader umbrella of lots of different viruses and COVID-19 is just one of them. So we got huh. one through 18 to worry about, too. Oh, sweet. And once we hit 20, that's sequel number 20, they start getting worse. Sequels are always worse. Sucks for them that all those other people had their email address before they could get it. <laughs> <laughs> COVID19 at yahoo.com. They just kept entering it until it came up that they could use I'm it. I'm going to get it. Got it. Yes. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, hey, I stocked up on food. I think I'm being responsible. I'm not panicking. I know how viruses spread, but I'm, so I'm doing all the necessary things. Mm-hmm. But it does seem like we're close to having sc- our school close. Yeah. And if that's the case, we might have stores closing, and we're going to have a run on people going crazy buying up everything. So it's got to oh, yeah. beat them to the store. Yeah, panicking Skywalkers about to show up and <laughs> buy everything. But uh, I'll be stocking up on beer this week yeah. if I start getting any hint of store closings. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. You got everything there. You've got your uh, oats, I mm-hmm. guess, right? You got yeah. your water. Yep. And you got a happy feeling that everything's going to be all right. Yep. And a bottle you can break and defend yourself <laughs> if anybody tries to take it. That's the one thing I don't have is, you know, in these apocalyptic movies, they always have a pile of wood or they smack, <laughs> yeah. they're able to smash something to board up doors. Yeah. I think in my house, 
I don't know, even considering what the home is made out of, there's probably not a lot of wood in there. You know, you've got, uh, the doors aren't wood. <laughs> they're they're yeah, like foam but, core doors. But they look like doors. You nail them up, people just go by and look for an easier house. Mm, yeah. I don't know what I would do. Mm. That, that's, that's what we should have done today. It's oh, yeah. just you know, how to survive this. Yeah. Well, you have in all the, this sound equipment. In the modern day. You could have got barking dog sounds to play yeah. when people came to your house. Yeah. I see. I have to go off Ferris Bueller. Right. Hmm. That oh, Ferris be- Bueller and Home Alone, where it makes it look like there's a lot more people in here. <laughs> a couple of cutouts of Michael Jordan on a train. Yeah. Something like that. All right. Well, so, hey, uh, speaking of apocalyptic movies of the 1980s, I was, and speaking of our guest, uh, CMS, who's joining us to talk about the uh, Night of the Comet, I thought this was fascinating. So, in digging into the history of apocalyptic movies um, and post-apocalyptic movies, and I keep saying that only because some of the research draws that distinction, rightly so, I suppose, because the apocalyptic movies, they were reserving for the idea that uh, an apocalypse is imminent, and post-apocalyptic is what it sounds like. It already happened. So yes. You, so, you got your, uh, I guess, war games even could be an apocalyptic movie because maybe the nuclear war is imminent because of what... Uh, our young hacker does mm-hmm. and Mad Max is, you know, maybe after something like that's happened. But what I found interesting was that, um, the earliest apocalyptic film, you'll never guess when this came out. Even if I give you a chance, the earliest, I, I bet one, I can, I bet I can. Okay. I'm going to go 1905. Wow. Again, again, you stunned me. I wonder why I do anything on this show. That's so <laughs> close. No, it was not, very close, but 1916, uh, the aptly titled The End of the World came out. It was a Danish film. And check out what the story of this film was. See if this sounds familiar. There's a daisy chain of natural disasters and riots after a rogue comet passes too close to the Earth. Oh, no. Yeah. And the reason why this film came out in 1916 was it was because just a few years earlier, there was panic around the world because Halley's Comet came very close by. Now, of course, later we're going to talk about Night of the Comet. This is a similar story. Yeah, and as we all know, that's what killed the dinosaurs. Halley's Comet? Yeah. Oh, now, see, now you've gotten to a point now where I don't know when you're kidding me. <laughs> <laughs> you're getting too good at this. Yeah, what are you going to do? Okay, I'm going to say no, but that's one theory, yeah, yeah. right? I guess it's one theory, sure. Yeah, might, I, I've heard that theory. It might have been COVID-1. <laughs> That killed the dinosaurs. We don't know. But so anyway, in many decades since 1916, you've seen different variations of apocalyptic movies. And not surprisingly, they seem to be tied to what's going on in the world, what folks are afraid of in the world. Right. Um, So in the 1930s, you saw films that uh, focused on uh, floods and earthquakes um, and other types of uh, doomsday scenarios. In the 1940s, however, we took a little bit of a break, it seems, from apocalyptic films because we had a real, like, Dictators, world... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we had a, a real world potential for an apocalypse where, you know, tragically, we had, yeah, these dictators doing horrible things, including the Holocaust. So we, we took a pause. I think we like, oftentimes, we like our films to be an escape. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, yeah, that would be only the worst thing, I guess, would be that you go to see a film to escape the Holocaust, and the film and, is about the end of the world. Yeah. Um, in the 1950s, we were afraid of the atomic bomb. Yeah, a, a great thing about the 50s movies, yep. before we move on, um, yep. the, the atomic age, yep. all they did was mostly say, what if we just take normal things and make them bigger from, yep. from exposure, like spiders? Oh, yes. Everyone's afraid of spiders. Right, yeah. What about ants? Mm-hmm. Can we get away with ants? Let's mm-hmm. do it. Right, right, right. 
Yes. So, so yeah, that's a golden age of right of movies right there. Right. So yeah, another way that we showed how we were afraid of this new atomic mm-hmm. energy uh, and its possible threat to the world. Yeah. So you you got the, the day the Earth stood still. You've got um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers was a, oh, a, a apocalyptic movie. film uh, in a sense that was. Uh, Caused by the McCarthy era, you know, scare, red scare, you know, mm-hmm. when we're afraid that communists might be living among us, you know? So what other better way to show it is in this, you know, this allegory of aliens that can take over our friends. Uh, and like, to your point in 1950s, Godzilla is, uh, in a sense, sort yeah, of- Yeah, he's a perfect example of yeah, that. Yeah. So, and this continues on and on. Um, it, except for the 1980s. So in the 1980s, <laughs> well, <laughs> why do you say except for? Well, I don't know. Yeah, we have an, uh, an obsession with yeah. post-apocalyptic 1980s movies because uh, everyone thought the world was going to end yeah. with a nuclear war, mm-hmm. but I don't know. It just seems different. Yes, I agree with you. And some of these things, I suppose, so the Halley's Comet thing obviously was based on a reaction. Everything was a reaction, mm-hmm. but right. And I, I suppose even in the 70s, when we had uh, like Planet of the Apes, um, mm-hmm. in some films like that, they were a reaction, you know, in that era, reaction to Vietnam and, and things, are still our continuing yeah, threats to Russia. happening. Yeah. The 80s is, is now what could happen. Mm, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah. I, I think I can follow you there. Right, right, right. I thought this was interesting. So I found one study where someone counted how many films we had, apocalyptic films, since the 50s. Oh, in cool. the 50s, we had 13. In the 60s, we had 24. In the 70s, we had 39. In the, in the 80s, we saw 40. So in the 70s, 80s, around the same. Mm-hmm. In the 90s, uh, probably because we had an end to the Cold War, uh, the number falls back a little bit to 37. Mm-hmm. And then in the 2000s, between that first decade in the 2000s, it shot up to 65. Well, you have to remember that everyone had the ability to make a movie by that point. True. And what's the easiest movie to make when you're filming in your backyard? I think even more so, though, I wonder how much of this may have been a reaction to September 11th. Hmm. Like you're saying, you have something terrible happen, you know, like we've seen now in the decade. Something terrible happened, and now we're reacting to it. But I thought it was weird that we had more in, this in, in the 2000s than we had in the 80s. You know? I, I just think more people could make a movie, and that's why the number shot up. No, this is Hollywood movies. No, this is like your, <laughs> first of all, you started with this Batman comedy thing. I don't know what was happening there. I think you're already dipping into your uh, two-week supply. <laughs> so maybe the count of the 80s relative to other decades wasn't different. But the films were different, and I think you're right. It's, it, something else was different. It was the fear that what was imminent and possible was real. You know, it wasn't, it, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't vague. It wasn't mm-hmm. unlikely. I mean, at yeah. the same time, we have the day after on TV about, you know, the end of the world by a nuclear war. I, we were probably at threat level, you know, midnight, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and, and many of the films were like that. And, and in this one article, they actually characterize it. And this is an article uh, called the brief history of cinematic apocalypse by Chris Nashat. You need me to take a look at it there? Will? sometimes I can read things like this. Nashawati. You just made him Japanese, but okay, that's fine too. Well, you don't know he's not. That's true. Sorry, Chris. Either way, I'm sorry for butchering your name. Uh, this article is from 2014, and one of the things I thought he made this distinction was saying that by the end of the 80s, the end of the world was uh, no longer seemed to be something that was merely happening to us, but something caused by us. Our films forced us to look in the mirror. 
The example he gives is uh, 1981's Escape from New York. Manhattan's been transferred into a maximum security prison, a hellhole that anyone who lived in the crime and graffiti-plagued city at the time would have recognized. Hmm. In the early 80s, New York City was a terrible place. Yep. Dangerous. So you make a film about, if taken to its farthest, look what might happen if we don't get a hold of these types of things. You know, it dawns on me that a big part of this is it wasn't told as a, this could happen. It was told as like, uh, we just expected it was coming. Yeah. We expected mm-hmm. nuclear war. We expected oh, Terminator. Gosh. We expected all of it. Yes. So it was just like, it was like a history lesson before it happened. You're right. I don't know that folks who didn't live during this time and experience these films, you probably don't realize how much we really believed we could be bombed. Yeah. The, the only other, the only other per- people I can think of that would, it would apply to for our part of the world would be uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Right. I mean, yep. that's the same kind of vibe. Um, because you're right. It seemed like it could be possible. So on a serious note, yeah, I have to ask you what's your favorite apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic movie? Uh, offhand, just offhand, I'm going to say The Road Warrior. That's a good one. It's one of the earliest ones I, I remember seeing. It came out in 81. I saw it on tape, but it was probably you know in 82 or 83, shortly after it came out. Still stays with me today. Yeah. That sense of adventure, that sense of the threat. Mm-hmm. And how, and you're right. I can even thinking about it now feel like what it would be like to be in that scenario where you don't know where you're going to get food. <laughs> you need to get gas. You might have to kill people to get gas. Yeah. And there's crazy people and crazy children with boomerang blades. Oh yeah. And, uh, the, what the rock, the Ayatollah of rock and roller. Yep. Yeah. What about for you? I got to go with the same one. I got to go road warriors. The number one. Yeah. Um, they're, it's just a perfect movie. If you're going to live in the apocalypse, that's what I imagine mm-hmm. it to be. Yeah, and I still want that car. Yeah, I, I need the car, I need the shotgun, I need the dingo, I need the whole package. Yep. But I, I will say Escape from New York is also a good depiction of what, uh, if I was going to get a job in yep. in the apocalyptic version of the world, uh, going in to save the president right. would be a pretty good job <laughs> to have. <laughs> that would be a good job? Yeah, well, just think. I mean, it probably, well. Think it pays well? <laughs> it, it didn't in the movie. But if you were actually just a contractor that they hired to do it, it'd probably pay really well to go in there and get Mm. them out of there. Um, No, I don't know. That sounds terrifying to me. (laughs) Um, But we had so many choices yet. So in addition to those, uh, Akira, Day of the Dead, uh, another Mad Max movie, uh, Mm -hmm. Beyond Thunderdome, which is, you know, the weaker of all. Yeah. Probably. Uh, Night of the Comet, which we'll Mm -hmm. talk about a little bit later. I know that you, you had a few that you remembered. Oh, yeah. You got Steel Dawn. Steel Dawn. You got Hell Come to Frogtown. Right. Cherry 2000. You could even throw Cyborg in there. Yeah, I think so. Oh, Class of Nukem High. Mm. Throw a little bit of trauma in there. Yes. And it's, it's, it's not really post apocalyptic, but it seems, I, from what I remember, I think that's nuclear waste that they're dumping right. in the water is causing the problem. So, right. Is that also why uh, the toxic Avenger is, well, that's toxic. He, yeah, he falls into a toxic, <laughs> toxic. vac. <laughs> <laughs> you got to know your wastes. Get it right, Will. Get your wastes right. And also, later in the 80s, uh, CMS was in another post-apocalyptic film, World Gone Wild. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which, by the way, I'm yep. going to point out, she's the best actor in that entire movie. She has the she holds it together extremely well in a movie yep. where the other actors are cheesy. <laughs> and, and you know, and we, we've talked about this before, that um, in addition to this, now we're going off on a little bit tangent, just sort of because we like CMS so much. That in the film she's in, she's a badass. Yeah, she's great. She you know, does just great in every movie she's in. Unapologetically good at whatever she does, mm-hmm. including using weapons and 
kicking butt. Yep. Well, uh, to wrap this up, I guess I'll say that um, while it was anxiety-inducing, uh, in hindsight, I, I suppose, I'm grateful to the potential threat of a nuclear holocaust in the 1980s. Uh, that it, I'm grateful that it at least made the apocalyptic films of that era seem more thrilling, more exciting. That said, I'm also grateful that uh, now I can go see Infinity War and not be afraid that some uh, you know, evil doer from uh, another galaxy is going to come and wipe out half of our civilization. Um, although, my guess is next year, you know, we may see a, a slew of films uh, like we did in the 1990s about some micro, microbial threat. Yeah. And then you're trying to figure out where you're going to get toilet paper while, yeah. I'm, <laughs> while I'm stomping through Dollar Tree getting mine. Yes. Okay, well, on that, on that cheery note, uh, we'll be right back with our guest, star of The Last Starfighter and Knight of the Comet, Catherine Mary Stewart. Our guest today began her career as a dancer. But at age 18, while studying dance in London, she landed her first role in a film. Perhaps prophetically named The Apple, it was the genesis of her career. Shortly after her film debut, she originated the role of Kayla Brady on Days of Our Lives. And in 1984, the greatest year for celluloid, she starred in two iconic films of the decade, The Last Starfighter and the post-apocalyptic The Night of the Comet. And throughout the 1980s, she continued to appear in a number of TV miniseries, shows, and films, closing out the decade with her role in the implausibly funny Weekend at Bernie's. And she's continued to appear in TV and film in the many years since. In fact, this past holiday, you may have seen her in Up TV's Rock and Roll Christmas. And if you'd like to receive a personal message from our guest, find her at Cameo.com. Please welcome to the show... Catherine Mary Stewart. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Right. Yeah. And it's, I heard it's supposed to be a nice sunny day out today, even. Yeah. Well, it's nice here in New York. It's a little cloud, but yeah. uh, it's pretty nice. So our show is set out to be an objective defense of 1980s pop culture. So, you know, Ray and I are two middle-aged men, but we're not talking from a, a, spar, a point of view that's necessary. Necess, What's the word? Necessarily. 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 <laughs> I have to work on my enunciation. Necessarily from pure nostalgia. We, we believe that the 1980s was special in much the way the renaissance of the 14th century was. There was just a combination of different things that birthed a lot of amazing art and technology. We're happy to wow. speak... Right. This, you know, yeah, this is lofty stuff we're talking about here. This is deep, man. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to say, I've never heard the 80s compared to the 14th century before. <laughs> yeah. All of a sudden, I feel so much, I don't know, just yes. so much more intelligent and, and artistic and grounded. Yeah. Well, and you, were, and you were part of it. But, you know, yeah, and I say that only semi-tongue-in-cheek because if the causes of the, you know, the Renaissance, which was... That was 300 years. So the, to comparing it to the dec- to the 80s, of course, is uh, somewhat of a fudge. But you had in the uh, – during the Renaissance, you know, we had a greater exposure to other cultures. We had uh, developments in technology. We had a hearkening back or looking back at uh, older things. Like, And then it was, you know, Greek philosophy and teachings that changed the culture of that current era. And the same thing for the 80s, you know. And we're happy to talk to you and so grateful because, you know, you were a part of it. Um, but you were also a human. So uh, I note 
uh, and I say this not to be a also a what? A, a human. You lived through it. Oh, I, I'm a human. <laughs> I thought that's what you said, and I thought, well, like, yeah. <laughs> no. Well, I say that only only because, you know, we want to talk to you about the, the, the iconic films that uh, played a role in the 1980s, but also would like to get your perspective as someone who you know, have your own, had your own 80s, so to speak. So, and I know that you're of a, you know, you're a little bit older than Ray and I are. What would you consider your generation? What, what era are you a child of? I identify with the 70s. Okay. Yeah. I mean, in terms of um, culture and, you know, style and things like that, a bit lacking, I want to say, <laughs> but I love, I love like the music of the 70s. I, I, that's what I identify from things like bread through mm-hmm. earth, wind and fire. You know, it was, right. to me, I, I felt like that was also kind of a transitional time. I found, I found, I kind of found that the music in the eighties to me kind of plateaued in a way. And it, there was definitely great music in the eighties, but, um, for me, it was the seventies. I guess I, I want to say I'm not surprised as I, we consider ourselves children of the eighties, but that you focus on the music, which was great in the seventies. And, uh, minimize the other aspects of pop culture because maybe they don't have that pop, for lack of a better word, the the, the color of the, of the 1980s. When I, when I think of other decades, it's that hard. is for sure. Yeah, it's it's hard to. I don't know. For us, the 80s was very you know visceral thing. I agree with you with the 70s. One of the things I love about the music is, is certainly towards the end of the decade, you heard, for example, violins in rock music and in disco music. Like when you know we don't have that anymore. I wish we had that still. We need more violins. So, I agree. I agree. More production. <laughs> so you, you started as a dancer. I'm sure folks know that. And you, you were fortunate enough, I suppose, you could tell me otherwise, but you, your career took a, a, a turn when you were cast in the Apple. Did you have any training at that point as far as acting goes, or, or was it uh, you know trial by fire? It was a lot of trial by fire because certainly I'd never been in front of a camera on that level before. But, I, you know, I had always been involved with performing arts on some level, certainly through my school years. And when I was training as a dancer in London, England, I was attending um, a performing arts school. I mean, it definitely was mostly leaned off towards dance and every kind of dance you can imagine, from ballet to jazz to Spanish to everything. But they also, there were classes in singing and uh, dialect and um, acting. So it was a pretty, they covered a broad spectrum of of performing arts, which was really great. But in terms of acting in front of camera like that, that was a new thing. And it was trial by fire. And although at the time I was at an age where it was like, I just kind of went with the flow and sort of enjoyed every moment of it. And I was like a sponge, you know, it was, it was really fun for me, actually. It must've been very fortunate to have your first film with Menachem Golan because, you know, he would go on to write or direct so many of the classic films of the 1980s. Um, (laughs) You laugh only because maybe I'm leaning on classic a little too hard. Iconic. I'm trying to, I'm trying to avoid the way for cult film and maybe, and maybe because, and so, you know, folks refer to the last starfighter as a cult film, which I don't understand that at all because for me, when I saw it, and I was probably 13 or 14 years old when I, when I first saw it in the theater, it was already for me as big as Star Wars. You know, it was as exciting. It was as exhilarating. It made me feel like I could be plucked from obscurity and accomplish something big one day. 
but also just from a financial standpoint, I note that it made 29, roughly $29 million in 1984, which was the year of the blockbuster films. Among the 160 films of that year, it still ranked 26. It made more money than 16 Candles and Scarface. So how is that regarded as a cult film? I don't know. And I'm looking at Ray. Do you have any idea, Ray, either? Um, I believe it's a cult film because the fans have decided it's a cult film. But but they've been fans since 1984, right? I don't. Do you, it's, the, it's the dedication to the movie. Catherine, uh, at the time you made it, did it... Did it uh, Again, from a financial standpoint, I think, you know, I've seen interviews with Lance Guest who said he was told the, the movie made no money. But did you have a sense of how, I guess, big or impactful it was shortly after the film was released? Not really. You know, um, that was the first movie I'd done in Los Angeles. And I was just so happy to get the job. And I loved the job itself. I loved the character. And, and you, you know, everyone involved with it was, was very dedicated and had so much integrity and were very, it was like this sort of passion piece that they had written and created themselves. Well, it was a very small movie, but a lot of, this is going to sound very cliche, but a lot of love went into <laughs> it. And it yes. felt like that on the set. Um, but, you know, you, you kind of you do a movie and you move on to the next thing. And, and I mean, especially, at that, those early stages of my career, I wasn't thinking a lot about the future and, and what the potential of this movie might be. And, mm. and oh, am I going to be, you know, I just was just trying to keep the ball rolling and keep my um, career moving forward. Uh, when it was released, you know, it, 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 that's exactly right. We were told that it didn't make money, that it, it wasn't like, it was. It had a relatively small opening, and it didn't get a lot of exposure, you know. So I remember seeing the movie at a screening for the first time and thinking, oh, this is really charming and sweet and all that other stuff. But um, in terms of, you know, I, I'm shocked that you say that it made more money than, say, Scarface or one of those other yeah. you know, much bigger movies. But, you know, to talk about why it might be considered like a cult film, I mean, it, it kind of was there and then sort of disappeared. And then your generation, literally, the, the kids that saw it at like 13 or 14, I have a theory about. <laughs> First of all, it might have been like a, a transitional time in your life where, say, you got to go to a movie without your parents sure. and, and it was semi-adult and it, it gave you a sense of, um, independence and kind of maturity, being able to go see this movie by yourself in the first place. But what's so really beautiful to me about the movie is it, it is identifiable. I mean, yes, you, there's Star Wars, but when you look at these characters in Star Wars, I guess they're sort of young characters that accomplish these amazing things. But in the la the difference with Last Starfighter is this is a kid from a trailer park today, right. you know, that, that is thrust into this incredible world in outer space that seems futuristic, but actually is happening now, here and now. Um, and I think, I feel like the audience relates to that on so many levels. They, they like you said, that you identify with this character. And I think that that is so important when you're, telling stories, you know, that the the audience or the reader or whatever it is 
identifies with the characters on some level, it makes it it makes it right. so much more fulfilling and and sticks with you for a longer time. I think I've met so many people your age, kind of middle age or whatever, that are just like I can't tell you how this affected my childhood and how wow. I, you know much I appreciate it and. Um, I'm trying to get my kid, and the kids are all, you know, 13 or 14, going, oh, gee, dad, stop, you know. <laughs> but um, yeah, I just kind of feel like it, it's kind of a thing that is missing a lot these days in movies. Maybe it's changing a little bit now, um, but, uh, you know, anyway, I, I think that that's one of the reasons it, it sticks so, with people. Being a child of the 70s, um, was there a film that you saw that impacted you in mm-hmm. that way? Is there a is there a, a person you'd line up at a comic convention, you know, fantasy wise, to have met, or your younger self to have met from one of those films of that era? Oh my gosh, I you know it's it's strange, but my family we weren't huge moviegoers, hmm. um, or my I guess it's sort of influenced by your parents, but sure. um, so I mean I remember seeing um, like Mary Poppins, for instance. We right. had that album and I would bring that. I loved musicals. I, as it turns out, I love musicals. <laughs> but I would bring home that album and just learn all the songs and sing at the top of my lungs. <laughs> right. um, things like that. Um, Sound of Music. Those kind of things, which I sort of identified with on a different in a different way. Just the, the music. I always My house was always full of the three of us kids singing at the top of our lungs for some reason. And we're not particularly, like, my parents were professors, you know. (laughs) I don't know why that was, but we were very musical more than, you know, going to theater or or movies or things like that. So that's what I loved about those kind of things in the 70s. Right. Actually, I do remember um, To Serve With Love. Do you remember that one? Oh, yeah. I love that Mm -hmm. one. I know. I just love that movie so much. Maybe I identified with that on some level, but that was one that I really liked. That was maybe the late 60s, actually, but I remember seeing it on television. Right. Like, mm-hmm. The greatest movie ever. Right. And falling in love with Sidney Poitier. Oh, oh yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. So, you know, I learned and you were talking about how the distinctions between Last Starfighter and Star Wars, for example. I was uh, fascinated to read that uh, Nick Castle and uh, Jonathan Betchel were cognizant of the fact that comparisons would be made. And so that when creating the script and the production, they wanted to distinguish themselves and so move the setting from a suburb to a trailer park, for example. Were there any other thoughts or conversations or work that you did or work that was done to distinguish even your character from maybe some of the other tropes that we had at that time? Hmm. I not really thought of that. Um, I, I, you know, again, most of the sort of sci-fi movies were futuristic. Even right. Terminator, for instance. You know, I think what was so different was that it, it like I said before, it takes place today. I'm just his, like, yeah. Girlfriend in the trailer park. You know, it's it's very sort of humble. Our beginnings are very humble. You know, we don't start like in the future. You know, fighting off aliens or or whatever. We start just as regular people, and then this extraordinary thing happens. As opposed to being in in that kind of world to start with. Right. 
So we we uh, we know, you know, it was a couple of years ago, Jonathan Betchel, well, a few years ago now, he got the rights back to The Last Starfighter uh, script and to all the sequels and reboots that, uh, you know, may f- flow forthwith. Um, so we know he had teased us a little while ago, and Gary Whitta, who uh, reportedly was helping him pen a new script for a reboot slash sequel. Do you know any more about that than we do that you can tell us? Uh, I know us? what is online. I mean, okay. I really, yes. So I know that Nick Castle has been talking about this for years, actually. He even wrote a script at one point, but right. that was, and he, I, he and uh, um, Lance and I met in um, LA. This had to be 10 or 15 years ago. Wow. And he's like, this is what I'm thinking, blah, 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 blah. But then the problem was that they couldn't get the rights. And there's some right. uh, thing about after 35 years, the writer has the right to, you know, reown whatever it is they've written. And so that's why Betchel has the right to it again. A couple of years ago, or maybe a year ago, Nick Castle kind of announced it at a convention. So that made it very legit that they mm. were moving forward with this sequel. And But he gave no information about the story or anything. Um, I know other people online have talked about it um, and have these ideas and whatnot, but I'm not sure that this, they have anything to do with John Betchel and, and Nick Castle, who I think are collaborating on um, a script. Right. But yeah, they it's all very quiet. My only hope is that, you know, Lance and I are involved somehow. Yes. You know, maybe with the next generation kind of mm-hmm. a the last last Starfighter. And with any luck it's a girl this time. Ah, yes. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Why of course. So yes, no, I, I really haven't heard anything new. I but I'm hopeful. I think it would be great. I don't think it would be Hopefully, they'll stay to the kind of the charm and the integrity of the original script. But so we'll see what happens. Right. Yeah. And if you and 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 Lance are not involved, we're not seeing it. We're going to protest. That's right. It's not going to be good. Any, I, possibly exactly. be good. Exactly. Yeah. We're we're not. Ray and I are, we did an episode about this just a few weeks ago where we're against reboots. You know, even when. Sequel, right. Sequels were for, but a reboot, you know, we don't understand it. You've got something that's iconic. Why try to make something else or better? I mean, what's what's the goal there? And they're rarely successful, aren't they? I mean, I have right. no interest in general to see a reboot. I mean, I did go to the, even sequels I'm not great at, actually. I remember yeah. seeing the first Terminator, which I enjoyed. And mm-hmm. um, I went to the last one, which was sort of interesting, you know. Right. But um, I, I, I'm not good at even... Even sequels that reboots for sure are are tough. Yeah, and Ray and I are a fan of the Cobra Kai series, which you know is a, a spinoff of the Karate oh, Kid, yeah. which also came out in '84. But it's successful because you've got the original actors, and we see what they're up to, you know, thirty years later. And it's fascinating. Right, I've heard that that's terrific, and I, I still haven't seen it, but I, I know the, the actors, and I, I think that I, I'm so happy that it's as successful as it is. As, that's that's one example of kind of a reboot, but it's not really. It's sort of like a sequel, but right. it's a series, right? Yes. Um, that I hear is terrific, and that's exciting. So you mentioned, you know, maybe in the next the next last Starfighter mm-hmm. uh, or whatever that'll yeah. be, maybe we've get a, a female. And you know, we note that the other film that of yours that came out in 1984 was Night of the Comet. And in that, mm-hmm. I was prepared to say to you to ask you about how it seems like you were in this 
anomalous role as a strong female, and it, you know, and it, 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 in this film. But in researching this, I was surprised to find that it seemed like in the 1980s, unlike decades that followed, we had a lot of strong female leads. And interestingly enough, in those films, uh, unlike, again, decades that followed or maybe decades since, the male characters weren't intimidated by the female characters. So in later years, you have movies where, you know, the the, the, the female is, the protagonist is dumped by her boyfriend because she's working hard, you know, or working late, doesn't have time for him. <laughs> But in a film like Night of the Comet, you doesn't know, have time to come home and cook him dinner. <laughs> <laughs> right. Where's my laundry? <laughs> right. Right. But I, I was surprised to find, because I, I thought, you know, I would have thought the eerie, because look, 80s had its other challenges as far as the portrayals of women and maybe the opportunities for women. But there are films like yours, Night of the Comet and others that, you know, they didn't, the roles seemed a little more equal. And certainly Night of the Comet's an example. It had that sort of silly fun where, you know, teenagers were still teenagers to some aspect. But um, did it seem like you were, well, I guess the first question was, I know earlier you mentioned about maybe you weren't thinking, you know, you were just going from job to job. When that opportunity came out, and it was, it was I guess you probably worked on it right before, right after Starfighter. Was it a choice to find a vehicle or accept a vehicle that had now you as a leading character and a strong leading character? When I read the script, I was definitely attracted to the fact that she was this strong, independent woman because I'd always been, a girl really, I'd always been um, typecast as the girl next door, you know, I was sort of cute and all-American and blah, blah, blah. Yep. And which, you know, honestly, the real me is not necessarily that way. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm more, I have two older brothers. I'm, I'm just more of a, a ta- I'm not a girly girl, put it that way. I mean, I like girls, but I'm just not, I'm, you know, I don't like care. If, when people ask me, you know, what label I'm wearing, I have no idea. I'm really bad at that stuff. <laughs> I've got to like prepare myself if I ever do some sort of social, you know, media event. I've got to prepare myself with all that information. Because yes. it just doesn't come naturally to my all. So I, I identify with the character Reggie a lot more than maybe the little sweet girl next door. And, and yes, that absolutely attracted me to the to the role. I, I can't say that at the time I was conscious consciously right. thinking about oh, what is my next character going to be. But it was also I was I, you know there was a lot of material that was coming to me, and and so I did have a choice. You know, right. things that I could play. And this one was very quirky and, and very unique and um, strong. But with but she, the nice thing also about this character and and the character of Sam, well, we are kind of like typical valley teenage girls unapologetically. You know, right. we like boys, and so yeah, we were we could shoot a Mac 10 and <laughs> look after ourselves in that way. They're very, they're kind of comic characters, but at the same time, we were also unapologetically girls right. and talked like girls about boys and things like that, which is real. You know, I, again, I think that this is a, an example of a movie where the audience could identify with the characters on some level whether they, they identify with their independence and strength or their quirkiness or their feminine side or whatever it was. And, I, again, you know, I've been doing these convention things for the last, I don't know, almost 10 years, and 
And I'm always, well, not so much anymore, but I was so surprised when girls would come up and say, oh my gosh, you were such a huge influence on me when I was a kid. Wow. And boys too. Hmm. Boys, boys or men would say, I just loved how, your character. I just loved hmm. how tough she was. I mean, the idea that if a girl is strong, you know, like in a, in a movie or something, that guys will be turned off by it. So generally they just have, they sort of tilt towards a more sexual thing. It's right. just ridiculous. And it's a decision made by the business people that are running <laughs> right. studios mm-hmm. and trying to make lots of money. They're not, yes. they're not creative people, sadly. Yeah. Um, they used to be. They used to be creative people, but they're not so much anymore. They're just trying to make a buck as quick as they can. And so they fall into that sort of cliche where they're, they think that, well, that movie with that girl made a whole ton of money. So let's do that, you know. Yeah. It's just a shame. But yeah, it, uh, that was it's so nice that certainly equally males and females would say, what great characters. I think it's sort of a relief for people to see you know, something that, that's unique. Yes. And, and um, the, the uh, you know, it was surprising to me again that the 80s was a decade that had so many female characters like that. And I have a whole, I haven't, I haven't uh, laid this on you yet, Ray, but, and he's, Ray's not going to let me go into this because he sounds political, but I have a sociological theory that, you know, it, that it seems like our generation of, you know, men as boys grew up with these models where we had, you know, a f- female character models in films where they had more of a balance like that, it seemed. And so we grew up with a different understanding or respect for women that it seems like these kids today, now this is when we start sounding older, kids today, uh, you know, it seems like they, ha- it seems like in a sense we're moving back to, and some, okay, I'm getting off topic here, but some yeah. back to some o- older sort of feelings towards female and male roles that just are more right. traditional, less I, it's egalitarian. A, it, yeah, right. I mean, it's, uh, I'm not, yeah, it, it is different and it, it's hard to explain what it is, but you know, nowadays, you know, I'm not sure that boys necessarily know what they're supposed to do with girls anymore because all of a sudden we're not, we're not supposed to like it if a guy holds the door for us or, you know, if they, if they're polite, we're equal, God damn it. And, and, and I, I'm, and, and I feel like there's, yeah, this is going to, this is a fine line because uh, there are many, I, I I feel like women have sort of taken this kind of a victim role as opposed to, you know, we're all human beings. Let's just do our thing. Yeah. And I say it online mm. because, of course, the whole Me Too thing, which there's no question about the culture in the 80s. It, it right through to present day and everywhere, businesses, Hollywood, everywhere that women were taking advantage or whatever. Yeah. That is absolutely true. And the best part about this whole movement is that it really forcing the door open for women, which it has not been. It's been always very, very difficult to, for women to be directors, producers, you know, higher up. And you see that more and more. And, and you see a whole generation of, female actors that are powerful and really taking a stand and, and creating like Reese Witherspoon, for instance, is just amazing. She's, yes. I don't know when she sleeps that woman. And, <laughs> and you could say the same for somebody like Oprah Winfrey or something. 
where it's, it is changing, and I see that change, and it's very, very important and, and terrific. But there's a, I feel like the conversation about, you know, are women uh, look down upon them, they can't move forward, let's stop talking about it and just move forward. Mm. I, I, you know what I mean? Yes. Absolutely. I we need role models and women who are role models. It's like anybody. It's like, yeah, an American community needs role models in high, powerful places. Women do too, but men do too. We all do. And um, it, instead of just talking about what victims we are, let's just do it. Just go out and do it because yep. anybody can can do whatever it is they want to do. Right. Um, yeah. So I mean, and I because what you're saying is you know about our culture is kind of backpedaling in a way, and and I think that is, to me it's that over over sort of riding feeling that women are so delicate and can't take care of themselves, or they need an extra something that well we don't. We just need to do it. Just shut up and do it. <laughs> As a, as a way of transitioning back to the films, you know, talking about not being a victim, you know, so you're, <clears> certainly your characters weren't a victim in Last Night of the Common, and Rates made some observation about your character in Dudes, which yes, you know we don't um, see talked about often yeah, enough. Yeah, Dudes doesn't get enough love. Her character, Jessie. I um, love Dudes. Yeah, that's one of my all-time favorite movies. And um, my question to you is, when you're teaching John Cryer how to shoot the gun in the movie, do you actually know how to shoot a gun? I trained on a gun, and that whole twirling thing into the into the mm. holster um, with the gun. Unfortunately, it was done in close up. It, it didn't look that exciting, yeah. actually. But I had learned how to do that. And yes, when you have to handle a gun in a movie, you have to train to shoot a gun. We had to in like the comet with the Mac cans, and we had to. Uh, and I trained with somebody how to handle that gun and shoot it, not the rest of it. So yes, right. it was really fun. <laughs> yes, you certainly look very capable. But again, like we're saying, you know, and it, it's great seeing these uh, characters. So do you have an opera? You know, this is all, going back to another question. So uh, obviously, no, we know you're keeping busy uh, with acting roles. Do you still find an opportunity to dance? Oh, my gosh. Not so much anymore. I, I don't. <laughs> so one of my corny, corny dreams to, to get on Dancing with the Stars. Damn it. Oh, yes. <laughs> because as a dancer, I watch it and I, I know how hard it is. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, I used to think, well, I could never go on that because I'm actually a dancer. But over the years, they haven't taken people that are, are not dancers. I mean, you'll have all these athletes that literally like figure skaters and whatnot, gymnasts. They'll train in dance. They have to be able to do all that stuff. So it's like when it first started, it was like, oh, these, you know, actors that don't know what they're doing. So the competition is pretty base, you know, it's it's like pretty even. Um, Nowadays, it's like, yeah, gymnasts and, you know, these people that really are very, very strong and very flexible. So I feel like I could maybe... You know, especially at my age, most of the contestants that they bring on that are my age don't last very long. I might be able to hang in there for a little bit longer. Yes. <laughs> but in terms of, yeah, in terms of uh, taking class or whatever, I do still work out. I do my own kind of workout, which is based in, in a dance 
Right. So maybe, so, so Ray, we have to figure out how to start a movement to get uh, CMS cast on uh, Dancing with the Stars. Hmm. Hmm. Right. right? Gotta see I mean, I've tried to do that and I haven't been able to, just not big enough Dancing with the Stars star. I don't believe that. <laughs> no, I don't believe that for a minute. <laughs> you know, well, yeah, I was wondering if you're just too good for it. You know, they, they need to have somebody, you know, it has to seem like there's a, the, the drama that's built into those shows. If you're a clear, yeah. you know, runaway with it, then it, maybe it won't be as uh, interesting. Yeah, I don't think that would be the case. <laughs> 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 maybe, maybe 30 years ago. No, not as probably. But anyway, maybe 40 years ago. <laughs> Very good. Well, Catherine, I want to thank you so much for spending time with us and uh, reminiscing about not only the 80s, but the 70s, your own era. And um, thank you. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. It was a a really wonderful, fun, crazy time in the 80s. I I had the best time. I loved it. I loved the big hair. I loved the big shoulders. (laughs) I loved the wide belt. I loved the crazy makeup. I had the best time in the 80s. Um, so I think it's, it is it's an era to celebrate for sure. So what have we proven today, if anything? Now, uh, we, we did prove buying toilet paper as early and often as you can is a smart thing. Maybe getting it like a bulk subscription service from Amazon would have been smart at this point. That probably would have been a great idea. Although, as you pointed out uh, off air, that uh, something about if your neighbor doesn't have toilet paper, <laughs> that's bad too. <laughs> you better have a broken bottle. So maybe this... <laughs> Maybe this is a lesson. This this current uh, world threat is a will teach us all to be more empathetic. Or or we have proven okay. beyond a shadow of a doubt that sure okay that the apocalyptic and post apocalyptic <laughs> movies of the eighties yes scared the crap out of you far more than uh, any other decades. You know, and all that makes me think again about is toilet paper. If you're getting the crap scared out of you, you need a lot <laughs> of toilet paper. <laughs> Wow, this might be the grossest way we've ever finished an episode. CMS deserves better than this. We'll talk to you next time on The Idiots. See ya.